0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Final Thoughts series, where we bring you the final thoughts of folks who are dying and tributes to loved ones who've passed. A eulogy, a poem, anything and everything that stirs the soul. This week's Final Thoughts feature came to us from the terrific website, thefederalist.com, where a father named Jeremy Lott shared his eulogy to his daughter, Cecilia, who passed away in a stillborn birth. Jeremy recorded his eulogy as he delivered it at the funeral, and he graciously shared it with us all. Here's Jeremy.
1: I was going to say that the text of this eulogy is included in your booklets um, because its delivery is probably going to be as much of a struggle as the writing was. And I was going to tell you to feel free to read along or just tune me out and read it later, but uh, it ends with a bit of a cliffhanger, so you might want to listen. (laughs) How do you eulogize a girl who never lived? She never crawled, walked, spoke, cried. We don't even have honest dates for the tombstone since that clock starts at birth. By the time of her delivery, my daughter had left the building start with her full name which she would have hated at times because children tease cecilia little lot cecilia is perfectly lovely so of course my wife angie came up with it but that middle name would have dogged her have a look at her parents with their wide frames and my truly enormous head there's no way our little girl would have been little for long that part of her name would have been a running joke like a bouncer named tiny the headstone isn't ready yet because those take time. Here is what will eventually be inscribed in granite for future generations to puzzle over. She danced an Irish jig and was a peekaboo champion. There are a couple of stories there. Many philosophers have insisted that every new human is a blank slate, a tabula rasa. But mothers have always known better. They know that each of their children has a distinct personality that they see manifest even in the womb. Of the three brothers' lot, I was the one who was active at all hours. I rarely slept in utero or after, to my mother's great consternation. My cousin Jenny recently had a healthy baby boy named Aiden. In the womb, he hated intrusions on his space by any but his mother. When the doctor put sensors on her belly to get readings, he targeted and successfully kicked them off. I see soccer in his future. And our little girl, Cecilia, loved to dance. We discovered this when we were en route to her fatal diagnosis at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. We made some stops along the way, including one in Anacortes. On a whim, we went uh, to a night of Irish music there. She was only 16 weeks old, and yet Ange discovered she was kicking, and more or less in time, to the beat. She loved moving her long legs when she heard Irish music. She also grooved to Latin music. And you know, she was a true Washingtonian because she seemed to appreciate grunge while bad 80s soft rock left her cold. She responded to other sounds as well. Ange thinks she might have been shy or perhaps intently curious. When there were familiar voices around here, she would be active. In the presence of new voices, she would pipe down and listen. She knew her father's voice. When I read books out loud to Ange, she kicked... We attended a conference, and Cecilia was getting a little rowdy up in there. So I leaned into my wife's belly and said, Knock it off, kid. She surprised both of us by doing just that. But you probably want to know about the peekaboo, right? Ultrasound is an amazing technology. We see by way of sound waves and reconstructions on a screen. We could see evidence of a pregnancy before, but now we can see life in the womb. It's right there on the monitor. You you can can almost touch it. One of the things on that monitor that struck many viewers about Cecilia is, is what she did with her hands. She did intelligent things and playful things. She folded and steepled her fingers as if in thought or prayer, and she liked to put her hands in front of her eyes and take them away. As you looked at her, She did this peekaboo routine so often that it sometimes made it hard for us to get a good look at her. When she was still with us, we shared Cecilia's story with people. The great interest and support in money and prayer and in so many other forms was surprising. Here you have this little girl who would not live for much longer. She would never grow up and make her mark on the world. She might not even see daylight. But people wanted to know about her. They wanted to help in any way that they could. As you'll see from the children's books on the table to be donated to the library in her name, they wanted to commemorate her. Like so many other things about this pregnancy, Cecilia's end surprised me. I had assumed that she faded away. But, like philosophers, we writers imagine, and mothers know better. Ange tells me it was a bang, not a whimper. As so many things failed her, Cecilia gathered up all of her strength and kicked really hard in protest. One last time, it was the internal equivalent of, uh, you know, that one left a mark. And after that, she was gone. Right now, the news of her ending fills me with great, unimaginable sorrow. But I hope that will eventually give way to fatherly pride. Of course, no daughter of ours would ever go quietly into that good night. She was fierce and we loved her fiercely and that's all we could do.
0: Thank you for coming. And thank you, Jeremy, for sharing that. His eulogy to his daughter, Cecilia, and thanks to the dot com for providing it. Jeremy Lott's story, Cecilia's story. here on our American stories. This is Our American Stories, and up next, Mackenzie Vath, a young woman who wrestled through some early challenges in her life and came out stronger for it. Our own Alex Cortez brings us her story.
2: Mackenzie Vath has a dad who's incredible. Tim Bush's companies employ 3,500 Americans, and he's fighting to build a stronger Catholic church without corruption. But all of this can come at a cost.
3: As a kid, we, um, he wasn't around at all. We didn't know who this dad figure was, besides the fact that he was a hard man. That's it. I didn't know what he did. I didn't know where he went. He had a driver at the time because he would be so busy, he needed that extra time in the car to make calls and do emails and whatever else he was doing and he was this mystery man and he even work on weekends and i remember like this very vivid memory his office was in the front of the house and it was this beautiful all wood library office and there was a grand piano right outside the office doors and i always wanted to play music so i would sit at the piano and start to play and obviously i was terrible because i never took lessons or anything and i was a kid i was like between 8 and 10 years old and so I was just kind of like poking around at the piano, but trying to figure it out. And he'd come out of his office and be like, Kenzie, quit it, knock it off, get off the piano. And I just never pursued music because it was something, it was always a distraction for my dad because he had, he had to work. And not that he noticed, but he just didn't give me that opportunity to just be a kid and explore. I kind of was always a really social kid until about high school, and I was dealing with some illnesses that were kind of unexplained. I kept telling my parents I, w- I felt really tired and my joints were hurting and this and that, but nothing really came of it. I went to a few different doctors and they kept saying, you know, she's she's fine, there's nothing wrong with her, it, she could be exaggerating. That was That was probably my favorite one. I was a teenager, so I was overdramatic or whatever excuses they had. Um, Later, I found out I was diagnosed with Lyme disease at the age of 18. I was a senior in high school going into my freshman year in college.
2: Lyme disease is a bacterial infection that you can get from the bites of bugs like ticks. And treatment with antibiotics usually leads to a fast recovery, but sometimes it can be more serious.
3: All the issues I had even as a child dealing with dyslexia and learning disabilities and fatigue and joint pain and all these random unexplained symptoms were all answered through this diagnosis so it was interesting when I got that diagnosis my parents started to actually take me a little bit more seriously at that minute because they were saying, hey, you know, she's really been telling us something and we just didn't know just because the doctors were telling us one thing and she's telling us another. So I moved to Arizona with my mom the summer of my freshman year in college and got treated. I mean, It's something I've really tried to forget a lot of because of the times. It was very difficult at first. I was young. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand why I had to go through this. I was sitting next to people, you know, being treated for cancer. I was the youngest person by at least nine to ten years. So I was like the pediatric patient in a sense, even though I was a teenager. I was the kid in the facility getting treated and being hooked up. I had surgery to get a pick line in my arm, so they would access, they get direct access to be able to hook me up on IVs every day. I was taking about 50 different supplements. We lined it all, all up on the kitchen counter in our little apartment that we rented down the street. And it was an overwhelming period. I mean, my mother was, <clears throat> my mother was taking care of me. She was making sure I got in and out of a bathtub because I didn't have the strength to even stand in the shower and I couldn't get my pick line wet. So I had to wrap my whole arm with cellophane and then she'd have to like wash my hair. So it was, it was a very reversed role in sense I was almost like this infant again that she had to take care of. And it was difficult. I think it was challenging for her as a mother to see her, her child ill. And you know, at an age that I was supposed to be in my prime and I was supposed to be out in the world independently and learning how to take care of myself and um, enjoying my life. You know, I was supposed to be young and free and, you know, just worry, worryless. I didn't have, I was supposed to be careless in a sense. And that was complete opposite for my my life. I was very cautious. I had to be very careful. I had to clean up my eating right away. I just wanted to be a normal kid and I didn't get that kind of opportunity. So I really went inward and became a little bit more introverted. I, I was a little more socially awkward. I wasn't as much of a performer. I didn't really want to be around big crowds. So I really struggled with like my personal development, but it was, um, and I'm trying to like really dive into the emotion. I really had to shift into a, an adult role as well like not only was i this infant trying to, i was being taken care of but i also had to mature i had to i had to get into a headspace that knew my life wouldn't get to be like all the other kids my age i wouldn't be able to eat whatever i want or stay up late or you know drink and party and i had to really take care of myself and it was, I was mad for a long time. And even to this day, it's, there's definitely a dark, you know, dark, it was a dark time in my life and it it's something that is sensitive to talk about. But at the same time, like one silver lining that came out of that was the relationship that I built with my mom and the gratitude I had for her. Because as an infant, you're not, you don't realize how much your parents do for you, or how much they take care of you. And as an adult, you really realize how much they give up to you, give up for you and how much they just love you unconditionally. And that was a really cool thing to see like later in life because you don't well, most people don't get that opportunity to see that um, until their parents and then they realize they're like, "Wow, I have this kid. Now I know how much my parents loved me." But I got to see that before. I had a kid, and before I went through that process of, you know, just understanding unconditional love, and if my mom and I bonded over the funniest things. We would watch when I got home from treatment. I, I just laid down; I couldn't do much, so we'd watch Golden Girls and Bonanza and all these just really heartful, fun shows.
2: Mackenzie was also taking college classes online, and after her treatment was completed she tried to go in person
3: when i moved out to college i still wasn't doing good so i ended up moving home and um kind of finishing off my schooling at home so i got to get this really good quality time with my folks that my brother didn't really get to have because he went straight off to college and kind of never looked back so it was it was a silver lining it was a silver lining in this terrible period of my life and during that time I really wanted to start documenting this time I had with my parents in this special growth period that I got to learn a lot about them and what they did and saw the ups and the downs of their daily life in a different lens as a little bit older adult. So that was kind of where I where that all my curiosity all started more so with how, like what they were doing and how much they've done and really wanted to know kind of where it all stemmed th- from. So fast forward, uh, you know, after schooling and working and starting my own career and, you know, a few businesses down the line and everything else, I told my dad one day, I was just saying, I just made a joke like, oh, I'm going to write a book about you. And he said, yeah, we'll see. I don't don't think so because I love to say a lot of things. And, you know, that just gave me more motivation to be like, okay, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to, De- like dedicate it to you as a legacy. I went in wanting um, to interview both my parents, but my dad just has a very fascinating story, as does my mom, by the way, and I could write a whole book about her alone because she, she's a, an amazing person. But I think the interest with my dad was because I didn't have as close of a relationship with my dad as I did with my mom. So I had my mom's story written before I needed to interview her. Like I knew who she was, and I'm very close with her. I know a lot about her personally, but I didn't know much about my dad personally.
0: And you're listening to Mackenzie Vath, and she's telling her story, her childhood story, struggling with Lyme disease. At least finally, she had gotten a diagnosis. She wasn't crazy, and she wasn't a whiner. She really figured out what was really ailing her, and then the struggle to get through it And when she came back home, because of some difficulties in college, there was a silver lining in that. And that she had now come to understand that her parents were people. She wanted to know who they were, and particularly her father. She wanted to know him better, and what better way to get to know a person better than to write about him? When we come back, more of Mackenzie Vath's journey here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and with Mackenzie Vath's story of writing about her own dad, Tim Bush. Let's return to Alex Cortez.
2: While interviewing her dad, Mackenzie learned so much more about his childhood and how it impacted his adulthood. His parents were very strict and never said those three words. I love you.
3: Um, I had a few people tell me I shouldn't put that in the book, and I said it, it was necessary to go in the book because people had to understand where he came from and how he was raised and what that type of culture was in his house. Because if someone asked me where, you know, where I get to today, how did you get there? It's because of what I experienced in my life. So I thought it was very important. And then after the book released, you know, even my mom came up to me and she was like, "Wow, you didn't really paint." The nicest picture for your grandma and i was like it wasn't about painting a nicer or a, a nice or a mean picture i painted the realistic picture and the truth and i wanted to show that to the reader that you know this is why he does what he does you know this is why he's motivated to do, to be better and i definitely think it's something that that's drives him so not being told i love you by your mother growing up and your dad always just you know wanting more from you it's it's hard and there's two ways you could go you could just self-pity yourself all day and not become anything and blame your parents or you can work harder and try to improve yourself and get out of those restraints and those emotional difficult times and he did he pushed through that and he loves his parents, don't get me wrong. He dotes on his parents more than anything, and he still takes care of his mother today, and his mother is very proud of him. Even though she is a, a woman of very few words, she shows up to things, and that's that's. I think that's her way of showing her happiness for him. And his father was a, a very more sensitive guy, not as a, parent but he was definitely more sensitive just in general and he was definitely proud of my dad and um, yeah it was definitely challenging he didn't know how to give love or really receive love I think and I don't think you know he understood like different love languages and so that was definitely challenging for me because like I didn't really want him to tell me he loved me I want him to show me he loved me but he didn't even know how to do that but it. looking back, I understand now why he continued to say, like, hey, Ken's," and I'd be like, yeah, and he's like, I love you, because he was never told that. And so at least I knew, if he never showed me, he told me he loved me, and I knew he did, instinctually. And sometimes, I, I'm sure as a child, he's never told me this, but I'm sure as a child, he questioned if his parents loved him or if he, they just you know, we're a little bit more old school and just had kids and the kids grow up and that was it. It was like, there was never emotional connection to your parents. It was almost like you were just had to be an independent being by the time you were born. And it's just, I don't think that's the way of nature. I don't think that's how nature intended it to be. And I'm proud of him for breaking those chains off of him and not letting him get down with any self-pity or any blaming of anybody. He really is just, he's, a self-made individual that's been motivated by that type of behavior, but he's also motivated by positive encouragement. And I think our family gives him that positive encouragement and his family gives him more of a, you know, a harder lesson to learn. But through that, he's made himself very successful. And I think at the end of the day, I, I would say he's very happy with that. I'm the one, you know, usually you're The the parents are telling the kids to put their phones away at the dining room table. I'm the one telling my dad to put his phone away at dinner or when he's with, you know, my kids and like, you know, put your phone away. And it's interesting. I think he made a big pivot when I started writing this book and then when my brother had his kids and he had his first grandkids, that was the biggest pivot I've seen in terms of a personality change with my father. Obviously he hasn't slowed down in any capacity. He's constantly making deals, constantly on the phone and doing more emails than probably our entire workforce combined. But he started to pay attention to not having that time with his kids and he regretted it. One night he, you know, a few drinks in we sat down on the couch and the kids were in bed and he just, he kind of got emotional and he was like, you know, I really wish I spent more time with you kids. Especially when we were older, you know, kind of like the in between the teens time uh, when he was really developing his business, you know, he just wasn't around much. And he, he has verbalized that. He's definitely, he's definitely upset about it, but he doesn't dwell on it. He's not the type of person that, everything's lost because he he didn't have that time i think he just he he's bummed but then now he's he's making up with it he's trying to make up with it um by spending time with the grandkids which is enough for me i think i just love him being around my kids and you know garrett's kids and just watching him with our kids is really exciting to see because for us it's almost getting that love that maybe we needed back in that time But now our kids get that love, which is more fulfilling for me at least.
2: And like her dad, Mackenzie's good at turning negatives into positives. And she did complete her college degree in holistic medicine.
3: I never let getting treatment like stop my progress, especially with education. Like I completed my degree in four years, like even though I had to take time off and it was a much harder for me to do, I never let it stop me from getting things done. And that was I'm proud of myself for that. I I never told myself that or have given myself a pat on the back, but so many people can make excuses for getting ill especially at a young age and and I definitely had my fair share excuses, but I I never wanted to like not work and just be taken care of by my parents and, you know, not go to school and kind of make those self-development excuses and I, I really wanted to become somebody and do something with my life and have a purpose and so I was very driven by that purpose and who knew getting sick may be that purpose for me one of the biggest things when it comes to healing or treating anything is having someone to relate to in a community to bond with and so I wanted to create that community through my business holistic umbrella and it just started with a few people I met in clinic. From getting treated a few extra times after Arizona, I, I I had some flare-ups and had to get treated a few other times locally in Orange County, and I met a lot of people through that circuit, and I, and I met people my age that had Lyme. So it was, it was a, you know, it was something I had, a, my, through my own suffering, I helped ease some suffering for other people, and I've helped hundreds of people since my illness. It's definitely a calling for me. My dad always jokes, he's like, man, if you didn't have Lyme disease, could you imagine what you'd do? And I was like, yeah, that's the problem. I'd have another Tim Bush on our hands, so we can't do that. But he just cracks up at me because I'm, I'm nonstop, I'm like him. Like I get obsessed about doing something new and like getting something done. And he he's just like, Kenzie, like, someone had to numb you like and I had to be the line like I just my Lyme doesn't allow me to work to full capacity every day and it's funny how much I do in a normal day so if I didn't have Lyme, that's the joke like it would be another little Tim Bush running around like doing crazy things I don't know
0: <laughs> and a special thanks to Mackenzie Vath for sharing her story her family story and sharing it honestly because if you're not going to tell an honest story don't bother telling it uh, honesty and truth or the antidote to all the bitterness and resentment you can feel in your life. And it gives a pathway for forgiveness and for a future and a future walk together. And what a special sensitivity she showed to her dad and to her mom. And by the way, to her dad, she was showing it to generations of dad who never heard I love you from their dads. I never heard it from my dad until recently, like the last 10 years. And I said, about time, dad. Like, hey, thanks. But I always knew he loved me. And I think she always knew her dad loved her. But he was busy, and he didn't mean it, and he regrets it. And he's trying to do life different. And that's all we can do in life is love, understand, listen. And it's a beautiful story. The book is The Paperboy, An Oral History of a Living Legend, My Dad, Tim Bush. Go to Amazon and pick it up. The story of Mackenzie Vath and the story of a daughter understanding and loving her driven dad. Here This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorite types of stories, in the end, well, they come from our listeners. And this next story comes from one of our listeners, Richard Munez. Today, he tells us two stories on living in history from the perspective of those who experienced it and didn't even know it at the time. Here's our own Monty Montgomery with the story. Punctuality is an important virtue to a lot of people. But for Richard Munoz, it
4: was his senior year history teacher that changed his outlook on life by skipping out on the dates in class.
5: When I was in the 12th grade, I uh, had a history teacher by the name of Bill Mahan. Now, Bill was not a heck of a lot older than I was at the time, and he had kind of a unique approach to uh, history. He felt that dates weren't important. In fact, he also felt that uh, dates is what turned people off about history. You know, you had well, Columbus came here in 1492 and stuff like that. But what was what was learned out of the, out of history? To him, most of it was boredom. They couldn't see the relation that what happened yesterday how it impacts us today. If certain things hadn't happened, ha- happened, happened, we probably wouldn't be here today. But history is also a lot more and about dates and about great people. It's about little people. It's about the stories that are told, stories that are usually forgotten within a generation or two. For example, I thought about Columbus coming to the Americas. Important event? Yeah. Without it? Like I said, most of us probably wouldn't be here. However, what stories were told by the sailors who went with Columbus? What stories were told by the Native Americans that met them? What actually happened? We have these events in our head, we have these events that history gave us, but in most cases they're kind of bare bones. Well, I've been lucky enough to have met a lot of people who are at pivotal moments in history, or they're in events that history has kind of glossed over. I've been in a few of those myself, and it's very rare that you ever see the big picture. You're part of it, and all of a sudden there you are. You know, you've gone through it and stuff like that and afterwards you're telling the story about what happened and a lot of times you have no real understanding of what you went through. For instance, I was in the Gulf War. I was in two of the biggest battles of the Gulf War and it wasn't until years later I even learned that they had names. And I wound up talking to people and I've uh, discovered that their stories were at pivotal moments. For instance, there's a man by the name of Levi Martinez. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. I remember when he told me this story, I was getting ready for basic training. Levi was my father-in-law at the time. And I'd asked him if he would give me something that belonged to him that I could take with me. Kind of a say, I guess you might say it's a good luck charm, whatever the case may be. Well, he gave me his army ribbons. And sitting right smack in the middle of this, is the Bronze Star. And I asked him, I said, why did you receive this? What what was, what was the story behind receiving your Bronze Star? And he showed me the citation. The citation, it was usual military stuff. You're using fire and maneuver. Uh, Private Levi Martinez was able to close upon and capture a German machine gun nest. Okay, that's pretty cool stuff. Then he told me his version of the story. This story happened like this. He was in Germany fighting with Patton's army and they'd been uh, advancing and whatnot and it was getting cold. Christmas was coming in, winter was here and they were kind of slowing things down a little bit. However, he also got word at this time That his mother had passed away and that it was uh he wanted desperately to go home and at least see the family well that wasn't about to happen after all you know here they are in the middle of a war he was seriously needed right where he was so what wound up happening was this they received orders to turn 90 degrees and start walking he called this the long walk and uh They walked and they walked and they walked, and it was storming on them, it was cold, and they just kept going. They knew that the Germans had attacked and that uh, this was a desperate situation. That they had the 101st Airborne and several other units just, you know, literally pinned down. It wasn't good for us. They had to get up there and take care of things, but again, he wasn't really concentrating on the war at the time. He wanted to go home and be with his, uh, with his people. After all, you know, his heart was breaking over there, and here he is, unable to even express his grief. I remember him telling me that as they were walking, one day, all of a sudden, a guy shoves him out, shoves him and throws him into a snowdrift. And he gets up and asks, what the heck that was about? And the guy said, you almost walked into, the, walked into uh, the path of a tank there. He'd literally fallen asleep while he was walking. And if this guy hadn't shoved him, he'd probably fallen under the uh, uh, treads of the tank and been ran over. When they started getting up into uh area around Bastogne and whatnot, the Germans had seized this one small town and had established a machine gun nest outside of the community. And this machine gun nest opened up on him and his people and uh, just firing away from him. Had him pinned down pretty good. Well, in the middle of all this, he's thinking about his mother and all he wants to do is stand up and go home. Well, finally he said, heck with this. I'm gonna go and I'm going home one way or the other. So he stands up and he starts approaching the machine gun nest. There's no fire maneuver to this. There's no running from one uh, point of cover to another and while firing firing at the enemy. He is just a nice little casual stroll right up to the machine gun nest. And they're shooting at him. His people are yelling at him to get down. He's just walking. He wants to go home, and he's gonna go home one way or the other. Eventually, he winds up on the crest of the machine gun nest looking down at these seriously astonished Germans. And while he's up there, he decides, well, well, I'm here, I might as well do something about it. Points his rifle at him, and they surrendered. And that's the story how he got his Bronze Star. That's what history's about. It's about people involved in um, extraordinary things, extraordinary events, and not realizing it. An example from my own uh, personal history happened during the Gulf War. Now, this doesn't involve a battle, doesn't involve lining up uh, an enemy tank and firing on it or anything like that. No, this involves almost the aftermath. I mean, the war was over to all extents and purposes. We'd beaten the Iraqis. Now, what we were doing is we were getting ready to go home. I was a military policeman at the time, and what a military police do is they are responsible for movement. We move the division. And part of our job was to perform the route recon from Iraq through Kuwait and back to uh, Saudi Arabia. And we were excited about this. I mean, we'd been over there for about six months. And this meant we were one step closer to going back home. I mean, it was great. We'd made it through the war. Now, here's the problem. The war might be over. The weapons of war are still out there. And they're still very much alive. Despite the ceasefire, you can still get yourself hurt or killed out there. So what we did was my platoon, we were told to go back and perform his route recon. So we're going down high, Highway 70, and ahead of us, we saw a bus. And on the back window was a placard that had a British flag uh, printed on it. It was the Brits. Now, it pulled over, and a bunch of guys started getting out. This is obviously, you know, on the road, bathroom break. We're about 50 yards away from when all of a sudden we heard a car boom, and there's this burst of dust up, and several of the British guys wound up falling, falling over, falling back. Well, we knew what had happened right away. What had happened, we had pulled over and walked right into a minefield that was on the side of the road. Now, our first instincts as human beings is, oh my God, we see people in trouble. We're police officers. We have three people with us who are trained as medics. Why not pull over and help them? Our allies, fellow human beings on top of that, were hurt. We were in a position to help them. That's what we were going to do. Well, as we're starting to pull over, all of a sudden this one British guy comes around the thing and he's waving at us and yelling at us not to stop, to keep going. And that's when our lieutenant yelled, we have, med- we have medics with us and he said, so do we. It's too dangerous here, we'll treat our own wounded, keep moving. So we wound up going past. To this day, I don't know what happened to these men. I don't know if they, any of them were killed. I don't know if any of them were just injured and have recovered from their injuries. Again, it's history. You get your little teeny tiny segment of it, and you don't know what happened next.
0: And you've been listening to Richard Munez share his story, actually two stories, about war. And from a very different point of view, and this is what made Stephen Ambrose such a great writer, he told the story and gave voice to the stories of the actual soldiers on the ground, the so-called grunts, the guys doing the fighting, the cooking, the traveling, all of it, and gave them, well... Not only a voice, but a part in the narrative. And then all of us could relate to it as we were walking in their shoes. And by the way, if you have a story, and we love our listeners' stories, again, send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Again, they are our favorites. We play a lot of them. Richard Munez's story, two of them, two soldiers' stories, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This next story, well, it's our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And Alex today brings us an unusual story from a guy named Bill Koch, an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees. Here's Bill.
6: You know, what I really like, if you look at a great painting, you could tell the love, the artist did in creating it, and to me that's precious and that's what creates in my opinion great art you know is the love for what the artist was doing and then food too you know with an outstanding chef you could taste that oh my god this tastes differently like, because he put a lot of love into it which means he put a lot of energy and thought and everything else into it and the same with a uh, bricklayer you know if he really loves his work He takes a little extra care in doing it other than slapping it together. And the same thing with wine. The great wine, she could really taste the love that the vintner had in making it. And so that, to me, is highly offensive when someone is faking it.
2: Bill found out that four bottles that were sold to him as Thomas Jefferson's were fake. And then he found out that more were, too.
6: There's a huge code of silence because the faker doesn't want to know that he's faking. The middleman who's selling the wine doesn't really want to know if it's fake. In fact, there was one big auction house that was selling a lot of wine in New York in auctions and they had to have this retailer deal with them to get through the laws. And. Uh, the guy who owns the retail shop, said, why are you selling a lot of fake wine in this auction? And the head in-house counsel versus the outhouse counsel (laughs) said, authenticity is an opinion. And we're not in the opinion business. We're in the business of making our margin. So just ignore it. And then the guys who buy the fake wine if they find out it's fake, they want to get rid of it and get their money back. So primarily they either dump it into the auction market or they give it to a charity to auction off or they find some sucker that will buy it. Some of the fake wines I bought were from charity auctions because the guy gave it to him and he got a tax deduction on it and some other <laughs> schmuck got him. Mainly me. (laughs) I got him. (laughs) And so I just said I'm I'm out of on a crusade. A legal crusade. To shine a bright light on it. And I also, I guess because when I was younger, I was taken advantage of by people when I was naive. And so I said, I just hate being cheated. Hate it
2: one of the fakers actually offered to give Bill all of his money back, and Bill said, no, we're going to court. That's right. Well,
6: I ended up in one real long lawsuit, which we won hands down. And then after that, everybody wanted to settle with me. And there was one guy who said, well, I sold you these fake bottles. Would you give them back to me so I could give them back to the guy that sold them to me? And so I said, all right, I will. But then I engraved on the bottles, counterfeit, and gave it back to him. I haven't heard from him since. (laughs) One big faker sent me a fax saying, why are you worried about fake wine? Even Jesus turned water into wine. And I was hoping I could get him into a court in the Bible belt, (laughs) but I couldn't. (laughs) One guy had a huge collection of pre-World War II bottles of Petrus, which is one of the best wines in the world, and oversized bottles. And I bought a bottle of 1921 Petrus in a double magnum. And I opened it up. God, that tasted like the cheapest wine I've ever had. And I looked at it, and there was an article about this wine, about how it was found and who found it, etc. And it was rated a hundred out of hundred. That's why I bought this bottle. And what the guy did, the faker, I mean a Hardy runstock, poured in 1957 wine into the bottle and he made a fake label. We even found the place where he bought the bottle and we found where he had the labels printed. And he poured in 57 wine put in some juice that made it taste old and smell old, I said, what he did was put moose piss in it for me. (laughs) And we took this bottle to uh, Petrus, and they said they never made big bottles pre-1945. And this one guy who had this huge collection of huge bottles called me up and said, are all our bottles fake? And we said, yeah, how do you know? Well, we went to Petrus and they said, they never made them. (laughs) And they said, oh my God. And then uh, a month later he called up and said, why don't you buy these bottles for me? And I said, why? They said, well, it's good evidence. I said, well, I don't need to pay you. I'll just subpoena you. (laughs) Unfortunately, Crusades turn out to be long and very expensive."
2: (laughs) Bill has spent $35 million going after the fakers over what was originally a $400,000 wine fraud, and some might say that's a crusade not worth it, spending 87.5 times the cost. But for Bill Coke, it is. The crusade isn't about the wines, I mean it's a little bit about the wines, but Bill could have bought new wines for far less what it's really about to him is the rule of law and bill's pursuit of the rule of law ended up exposing an industry of tens of millions of fake wine
6: i try to say well it's bad business to cheat when
0: you get caught and great job as always by alex and thanks to bill coke and you might be thinking expensive wine how does this relate to me But if you have ever been cheated, passed along what we in New Jersey would call a fugazi. And I know I have a dear friend who bought what he thought was a real diamond for his wife and spent real money. And it was a phony. And it turned out the guy had been peddling a lot of fake diamonds. And to a a, really a harmful detriment of a whole lot of families. A rule of law series, because let's face it, sometimes the cops can't get these people. And sometimes, let's face it, uh, no one else can. Sometimes we the citizens have to go out and find these fakers, but if we can't bring them to a court of law, if we can't have the rule of law, then we have nothing at all. Bill Koch's story, his crusade against fake wine, and again, and against fake everything, here on Our American Stories. Continue with our American stories, and now we bring you the story of Game to Grow, a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons and Dragons as a tool in therapy. For you to explain what they do are Adam Johns and Adam Davis.
4: Um, as we talk to, to people kind of around the country, and especially people who are not not in the gaming or um, or kind of geek um, atmosphere or culture. Oftentimes, they assume Dungeons and Dragons is a video game. So here's here's how I usually describe it. Um, there's one person who acts as the sort of head storyteller and referee of the game, and they know most of the rules and they can explain most of the rules to the game. And that person's usually referred to as the dungeon master or the game master. And they sit at the head of the table and they describe stuff that's happening in the world. And then everybody else who's sitting at the table um, is uh, just playing a character in that world, a single character. And they have a piece of paper that tells them things like how strong their character is or what kind of equipment they have or what kinds of abilities they have. And this all takes place in a fantasy world, much like Lord of the Rings, where there are swords and bow and arrow and uh, full suits of armor. And, of course, magical spells. And the dungeon master might describe something like, all of you have uh, decided to venture into this dark cave where you can see that there are, there's mildew growing on the walls, there's mold, um, and there is a um, dripping coming from the stalactites in the ceiling. You're here because you've heard of a tremendous treasure um, that apparently was lost in these caves a long time ago, and you've decided you're going to go after that treasure. Maybe even you have a map to help guide you through. And as you travel further down into the cave, it's very dark, um, but you can see that the walls have been carved out like somebody has carved them with man-made tools. And you travel deeper and deeper into this cave system until finally you open up into a, a large room And in this large room, you can see um, across the way is a door on the other side of a very large gap. um, And the gap seems to stretch very far down into the ground. But the thing that really catches your eye is that hanging above the gap, uh, clinging for dear life, appears to be a small gnome man. And he's uh, hanging from a rope. And he sees you as you walk in and he uh, shouts to you. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much for being here! I'm so happy somebody finally showed up! Please help me! And at this point in time, uh, the dungeon master then says, what do you do? And all of the players at the table get to decide what their character does to sort of overcome this This challenge or this situation. So they might do all sorts of things. A uh, warrior character might um, leap across the pit and try to grab the gnome uh, to save him from, from falling down into the pit. A, um, a ranger or an archer character um, might shoot a bow with a, with a rope tied to it and tightrope walk across the, the pit and, and um, save the gnome that way. Or a wizard character who can cast magic spells might uh, use a magic spell that to pull the rope and get it swinging so the gnome might be able to jump off. And no matter what they do, they're going to do it together because all the players at the table are all working on a team together. They're not competing with each other. Instead, they are working cooperatively towards a common goal. And in this case, the common goal of the game is not the most points. It's not even to achieve a particular goal. Even in this case um, of the example I gave, you're not trying to get treasure. You're trying to tell a story. And that's one of the really brilliant things about um, games like Dungeons & Dragons, is that the point of the game is to tell a story. And because that's really the goal of the game, because that's really the place that you're trying to get to, everybody at the table might have a different idea for what that story looks like, but they know they're all working towards that goal. Um, and that's what really turns it into a a brilliant and amazing experience. As the Dungeon Master continues to describe things in the world, continues to describe whether or not the player's um, uh, attempts to to do those things are successful, Um, and the players get to roll dice to help add randomness and and help determine the the outcomes of their action, and get to really have the most open-ended gaming experience you can possibly have, where they can decide and, and try anything that comes to their lines in a very loose um, uh, rule system that allows you to be very flexible with the outcomes of it.
7: A lot of game masters to my chagrin, um, I don't like the fact that they often see themselves as adversaries of the players. There's oftentimes an antagonistic relationship where the game master uh, sees themselves as needing to challenge, and there's like a, ha-ha, your characters are going to die today because my monsters are going to be stronger than them. And we don't do anything like that. Um, our goal as game masters is very much to challenge the players, but also to keep them engaged— And keep them excited so we do that by challenging them the right amount um, building on their ideas while they build on our space um, on on our ideas because we are uh, we're co-creating and collaborating in this in this game where that's oftentimes uh, for many of our players the first time an adult has said what do you care about what do you want to do so then the players now see an adult who is playing with them, really playing with them in a way that is very healing to a lot of a lot of participants, especially ours, who are identified at school as, as oftentimes being an outcast. People tell them what to do all the time, very rarely say, what do you care about? What is something that you want out of life? And so this is an opportunity where they can push boundaries and see what happens when they take up space and then have an adult be excited about the choices that they're making. We started doing what we're doing right now, using Dungeons & Dragons in therapeutic social skills groups, largely by accident. Adam and I both started playing Dungeons & Dragons when we were pretty young. Uh, got a lot out of it. We played games with our friends. We got to use all the, uh, all the mechanics of the games and the storytelling of the game to really get a lot of social outlet when we were kids. I, Adam Davis, was... Um, Studying drama therapy because I had wanted to use the the drama games and experiences that I had had as a performer and then as a drama teacher to help kids um, help kids become more into themselves and learn about themselves and, and how they could interact with the world better. And so Adam and I met in grad school, and I started picking up um, an after-school program that was a Dungeons and Dragons program for quirky kids who needed a little a little guidance and social support and I took the game over and realized that Dungeons & Dragons is actually a a perfect uh, modality for sit-down drama therapy, so we uh, started using the game a little more intentionally and then um, just barely scratching the surface, and then when my facilitator at the time left to go pursue other interests. There was an opening and I knew Adam from grad school. So we had kind of like done that thing where we uh, we, we brought uh, some things from our personal lives a sort of a get to know you activity in the very beginning of the quarter. And both Adam and I brought dice. We knew from across the room that we were both named Adam. We both liked dice and games. And so we knew we were kindred spirits.
4: Uh, so um, we, we had that great moment, that sort of nerd nod. Uh, from from across the room. Um, and then uh, after the class, uh, Adam Davis came up to me and he said, hey, do you want to get paid to come and play improv games in Dungeons and & Dragons? And I was like, yeah, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds like the best. Um, and at the time, the group was really just a, a sort of uh, drop-in social group. Um, and then when we came in, we started saying, there's a lot we can do with this. And we were both in a state of uh, sort of... Um, master's program um, desire to, to want to use all the amazing theories and all the amazing stuff that we were learning and we um, really had this tremendous opportunity to start diving in and saying oh my gosh we this this is exactly what we can be using all of these amazing theories all these amazing things that we're learning and we can apply them right here but through the game of Dungeons and Dragons that we grew up playing.
0: And when we return, we're going to hear more from Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Game to Grow, and it's a nonprofit that uses the classic nerd game Dungeons & Dragons as a tool in therapy. And my goodness, I never thought of anything like this before. But by the way, people who naysay and talk down so many of the games that young boys and girls play, I don't think see the virtues of a lot of these games and a lot of the social skills that can be learned playing them, and particularly Dungeons and Dragons because of its creative space, and how in the end, the world was created and in the end, dictated by the actors and players themselves. So when we come back, more of this story, Adam John's story and Adam Davis's story, two pals who figured out a way to help people at risk, people in need, game to grow, Their story here on Our American Stories. Return to our American stories and the story of Game to Grow. And by the way, they hail from Kirkland, Washington. And as so many of our stories do, they hail from all over this great country. And some are quirky stories, some are big, bold stories about founders and Henry Ford. But these are some of our favorites. They're not big, bold stories. They're better than that. They're small. Risk-taking, quirky stories. They're happening all around us every day. If you have a story like it, something somebody's doing to impact their neighborhood, their neighbor even, just that story, one person helping one person, we're as interested in that here in Our American Stories as Henry Ford's story or George Washington's. We treat them all the same. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. And now back to the story of Adam Davis and Adam Johns and how one of their childhood treasures turned into a grad school exercise and ultimately a full-time occupation in
7: therapy. We got our first group going. The parents saw the outcomes. The parents started talking to other parents, inviting us to speak at other engagements. And then all of a sudden, the, the ball started to roll. And then before we knew it, we have continued to grow. And we are now full-time therapeutic game masters and executive directors of game to grow We have a a sort of a, a theory at Game to Grow where players play the characters that they need to play. So we have a lot of players who, like I said, are socially isolated, who don't have a lot of social aptitude and they don't really have a lot of experience being charismatic or confident, but they pick characters who are aspirational. A lot of players come in and they they pick characters who are military leaders, who have on their character sheet that they are very charismatic, that people believe in them. And so we know right away that that's something that, the, that these young people want to, want to play with and want to explore. Um, we have players that come in choosing to play characters that are very similar to themselves, lone wolves who are very isolated in the game. And then we can help that character grow and thus the player grow. And that lone wolf character who wants to go off and solve every problem by themselves, now we put them in a situation in the game where their character needs to rely on somebody else because Dungeons & Dragons is a fellowship game. It's a game where every character has a unique and special ability that that makes them special. And that's a great life lesson, is that you can't do everything by yourself. And people are going to rely on you, and you are going to rely on people. And here's what that looks like to ask for help. And here's how good it feels to be able to be the person who can step up and help out the team. In one particular
4: instance, uh, where a player really made a choice that I was not expecting, um, the characters had all made their way through this dungeon, and they came up into a room where there was, um, on in one corner of the room, a massive troll of legend uh, who had been imprisoned there. And in the other corner of the room was a series of three unlabeled switches. And uh, across the other side of the room was a metal door that was closed. And it quickly was explained to the players that um, one of the three unlabeled switches would open the door on the other side of the room, allowing them to progress further into their dungeon. Um, And the other two switches, when pulled together, would release the, the massive troll of legend upon the players, but also upon the world itself. And usually how this works is that it's sort of a, um, an interesting uh, challenge where the players can talk to the troll, they can figure out uh, is the troll lying to us about which switch is which and, and it's sort of a mix of a puzzle and a social challenge. In this case, we had one player who uh, had just joined the group, and the player had described their character as being impulsive and having um, a lot of uh, hyperactivity. And it was an appropriate character for that player to play because that that player also struggled with those exact same challenges. And that player said, um, I run across the room and I pull all three switches at once. And I've run that scenario several times. That was the first time anybody had ever just decided to pull all three switches. <laughs> so all of a sudden I had to decide, okay, well, what, what's going to happen here? And what are the consequences of of effectively just running ahead? And all the other players at the table had gotten out like graph paper and they were getting ready to like solve the puzzle. And they just stood and stared slack-jawed at their teammate who who might have just done them all in. And what I said was the troll runs across the room and he picks up uh, the impulsive player's character, getting ready to eat them whole. And all the other characters, I said, you're, you're, you're the players at the table, I said, you, you can leave now. The door is open. Uh, but if you leave, you'll be leaving your teammate to be eaten by this, this massive troll of legend. And you'll also be leaving the troll to, to wreak havoc upon the world. You need to decide what your characters would do here. They are heroes in this world. What would they do? And they turned and they debated it with each other and they eventually decided that they would help their teammate. And so they enticed the troll back into the, the cage um, and re-imprisoned the troll. And at the end of that session, we always do a checkout at the end of every session. At the end of that session, there um, the players all checked out with each other and the impulsive player said, I'm really glad that you guys helped me out there because my character is really impulsive and it's clear that they're gonna have to learn how to be less impulsive. And I'm hoping that your characters will help teach them that. And one of the other players at the table also said in the checkout, I'm super glad that you did that because we're all here to basically learn how to navigate this space, how to learn these skills and be better at this. And your character doing that helped make me feel like, like I really belong here. I'm, I've struggled with some of the same challenges, and it helped me feel like I belong. And it was an amazing moment for them to realize that they're all in a similar place, and they've all struggled to make friends, to connect with people. Um, and this is a place where that doesn't matter, where they can all get along and where they can m- maybe have missteps but they can feel a sense of acceptance here.
7: Part of our mission is to get more games into more communities around the country and around the world. We have traveled and we've done presentations and trainings for therapists who want to get involved. So. What we've seen is that a lot of therapists don't have a lot of experience with role-playing games. And then the big barrier to entry, they, they hear the stories, they get excited, they want to participate in this emerging uh, intervention strategy, but they've, they're underexperienced in in uh, game like Dungeons & Dragons. So one of our missions is to create a product that they can then take and it'll help them get started much faster. This project is called Critical Core, It is a beginner box for therapeutic game masters to start helping their participants almost right out of the box. So it's got a really simplified rule set. It's got a facilitator's guide for how to facilitate the game to be a positive pro-social environment with all the improv and all the stuff that we have added on as uh, incorporating the play therapy and drama therapy that we have into our game. But then also it's got a very specific module design where the storylines are directly related to real-world areas of social growth. So we might have the room that fills up with lava, and that's a way to build frustration tolerance. Or the players have to go and get past a guard, and that guard might have a slightly downturned mouth that looks like a frown. And then we can work on theory of mind skills and perspective taking, where now we can talk about Uh, nonverbal social cues. And the fact that that guard being sad or upset has nothing to do with you. You have no idea why he's making that facial expression, but in order to get past the guard into the next room in the dungeon or in the castle, we have to be able to relate to him, understand him, and communicate with him. So those three components going into Critical Core uh, I think will really be how we can get this project out there. We, like Microsoft's vision of a computer on every desk, we want a game on every desk, a game in every school, a game in every hospital, a game in every clinic and therapist's office. Uh, That is our mission. So we don't want people to just game more.
4: We want people to game better. Don't just game. Game to grow.
0: And what an interesting story. At first, when I was reading about it, I thought, why should I care? But as so often happens here on this show, you start to hear the story and you go, my goodness, what an interesting way to do therapy therapeutic game masters and it just well it makes sense and we've been telling adam johns and adam davis's story great job on this robbie robbie just sort of bumped into it these guys are in kirkland washington and we love to tell stories from all over this great country big ones small ones again adam johns and adam davis game to grow and i love what they said don't just game more game better this is our american stories our American stories and we tell stories of all kind here on this show. And by the way, we live in a state where it rains a heck of a lot. We broadcast here in Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis. And our next story is about rain, or rather an innovative entrepreneur's company that collects and bottles rainwater for sale out in Dripping Springs, Texas. That's right. Dripping Springs. That company is called Richard's Rainwater, and its founder, Richard Heineken, and probably be considered the godfather of bottled rainwater in the United States. Here's Richard in our own Monty Montgomery with the story.
1: The idea behind Richard's rainwater started because of a dirty
8: Texas well. Well, I moved out to uh, Dripping Springs. I lived in Austin, Texas and moved out to Dripping Springs to help my sister-in-law build the Austin Zoo out. Its her her parents had this property out there. And Susie, my wife, and her sister lived out there and her sister was uh, raising goats. And anyway, it turned into a zoo. So I moved to Dripping Springs and built a house. And out here in the hill country, there's no other source for water except for well water. And so I drilled a well and (laughs) <laughs> the well guy, was, he's was leaving with a fistful of my dollars, says, Mr. Heineken, you have a lot of water there. That's a darn good well, a good-flowing well. And I went, oh, man, I was so excited. Go in the house, brand-new house, right, and took a shower. The hydrogen sulfite was so bad, I almost threw up in the shower. And the water was so hard, when Susie did the laundry... The uh, Levi's could stand up in the corner, and our hair stood out like fright wigs. (laughs) And we said, man, we can't handle this. Called a softener guy. said, oh, yeah, that's some pretty damn hard water there. I can put you two tandem water softeners together. Oh, my God. So I looked into solutions, and I ran across a doctor who became a good friend of mine, Mike McKelvin. Who started catching rainwater for his wife to really realize the well water out here basically kills plants. It uh, chokes their leaves. If you spray it on their leaves, it carbonizes over, so they can't. They they suffocate. So he started a rainwater collection for his wife's roses, and they flourished, and his house flourished. He went. He got into putting it in his house, and he flourished, and he was a really an advocate for it. And I met him, and I became one myself. So I looked into storage and found a fiberglass manufacturer in Texas and ordered a fiberglass tank and put it in and did a real, real Goldberg job. And it was all kind of new technology. But just plumbing is all it was. So it's just the water level. Water, if your gutter is higher than the tank entrance, it goes in by itself, right? And so I did that and hooked up a pump to it and I took a shower and I was the happiest guy in the world. The soap just came right off. It lathered up like you can't believe. It smelled wonderful. It drank good. And the dishes, instead of being chalky, all of a sudden became uh, clear. So my neighbor comes over and says, uh, God, would you guys just buy some new dishes? And I said, no, we're just washing them in rainwater now. He said, oh my God, well, I've been buying new dishes every three years and a new dishwasher every three years. So I want that. So I went, called back the fiberglass guy and said hey I want to be a distributor and uh, he said okay oh let's work a deal so so I was selling fiberglass tanks like crazy I was the biggest tank salesman in the whole planet I put in literally hundreds of these things and I've got a thousand people were relying on Tanktown as their source for rainwater filters and you know maintenance prop things and so that's how it happened then one day I'm putting in these rainwater systems. I have a crew of guys and I'm filling up our water for our consumption to keep cool the whole crew, you know in, a, in one of those ig- igloo five gallon water buckets one day we ran out, super hot day, sun, sun in July and I, so I said, okay guys I gotta, I'm going back home to fill up our water again. They said, okay hurry back. So on the way I thought you know, I should be able to pull into a store and buy this stuff and the bulb went off right so i went oh, okay and then so then i was just focused on bottling this stuff so i read the the regulations on a water supply realized that I needed to be a, a, certif- a, a licensed operator to run a water supply. So I was, started going to correspondence schools, and I went to Berkeley, Cal, and Texas A&M, and I got, my, I got a license to be a public water supply operator, got a permit number and all, and then I started building a plant. And Anyway, then I get to TCQ, the, the government agency that over, oversees our water supply in Texas, and they said, well, oh, Mr. Heineken, that's a pretty good idea. But rainwater is not approved as a source for water. I said, okay, so where are you getting your water? He goes, well, you know where we get our water, we get out of Lake Travis. Where's that come from? Well, you know, it has it's like rain. I said, okay, (laughs) that's okay. So I'm gonna, that's why you know, so we need to make this be able to have this as a source for water. Oh, I I don't know, sir. And another thing, Mr. Heineken. Now that we got this conversation going, we can't talk to you anymore because you're not a licensed engineer. So I went, okay, great. Well, I will come back. So I just had to prove it to them that it was a good source for water. So I built a little pilot bottling plant, and they said they proved that. Built it with my own bare hands. I'm a blacksmith. I'm a sculptor. I've cut the pipes and and used transits and got the right things and welded everything up and then we go out and put more systems in I get a more some more money go out and buy more metal put it all up and then I thought man this is I'm I can't really start this yet I got the plants going I got everything going I need some tanks I ended up buying 13 tanks and we had like 250,000 gallons and, and then I had the engineers and he's a friend of mine and he basically wrote it on a napkin I said here write this out make it look real official here's what we're gonna do we're gonna micro We're going to put it through really tiny filters, and we're going to separate it after it goes into a couple of tanks, and then we're going to put it through UV light, and then we're gonna store it in a sanitary tank, and then we're gonna put, just before we bottle, we're gonna put ozone in it. Now ozone, it's a really great sanitizer. Cities' water supplies use chlorine, and chlorine is a cancer-causing chemical, and so we didn't wanna do that. The Clean Water Act required public water supplies to use chlorine, and there was no other source of sanitation they would approve. You know, I have a saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. And it's the same thing these cities use. They just say, well, okay, here's a 10 gallons of chlorine. And so we're going to have to mix that with 13,970 gallons of water. And that'll do it. Okay, it might taste a little chlorine, but anyway, can't do that. And so my plan was, I said, okay, here's the deal. If you take me to court, and I'll, and here's the we'll end of We have to end up in court. I'm going to tell the jury that... Okay, here's what they want me to do with my rainwater. They want me to put chlorine in it, and that will cause cancer possibly. And then rainwater, we've already proved, it has no cancer-causing byproducts in it from the way we sanitize it. So it seems like a, a really smart thing to do. And so, and then also, if you say I can't do it, then then it'll be it won't be good because the jury is going to say, well, Mr. Heineken, we certainly don't want you to get cancer, so we like your idea they said well we kind of like your deal and it's also sustainable and then we started doing testing on it and and then did their monthly reports and it all always came back just beautiful and at that point more people in Austin and out in the hill country were getting into rainwater collection so everybody's calling us interested saying hey uh, I I w- I want to put a whole rainwater system in my house so Four years later, we got the first public water supply using rainwater as the sole source of water without using chlorine, and then that's it. It's all over town, and it's pretty damn good feeling. So it's a it's a future water. There's no doubt about it. It's still the purest water on the planet because it did never touch the ground. As soon as it touches the ground, it turns to trash. The deeper water goes, people say, oh man, my well's 10,000 feet deep, but oh man, that's 9,999 feet of trouble above it. It's just the perfect water, but it's a little difficult to get.
1: But Richard makes the bottling process sound pretty easy.
8: After catching it and put it in a, in a collection tank, that's the first thing to do. Like The city of Austin doesn't have to worry about that because they just suck it out of the lake. We have to put it in a tank that has no light in it because light makes algae and algae is, is, a, is not our friend. And then we process that through uh, more filtrations and then UV light and then uh, finally, just before it goes into our bottling line, we add ozone to it and only lasts 15 minutes. And then we put it in the bottle and we seal the top of the bottle. So that's a perfectly pure bottle of water because there's no trihalomethanes in it, no chemicals in it. And it's just it's just a beautiful bottle of water and you can taste it immediately. When you taste it, it's sweet because rainwater cleans your mouth. I know it's kind of gross, but there's calcium on your teeth. All day long it's building up calcium. It washes that off. It's just amazing. So I've never had anybody say, boy, that's a lousy bottle of water. It's always, hey, this is the best darn bottle I've ever had. And it's it just, that's the fact. That's what kept us going because it's the absolute truth. There's any kind of comparison of another bottle of water. It's just like blind testing It's just kind of a simple thing to do because you just, it's so obvious. And I've come been through a lot of them and rainwater always prevails. <laughs>
0: And great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery. And you've been listening to Richard Heineken, and he's the owner of Richard's Rainwater. And, well, the bottled water and everything else comes out for sale from Dripping Springs, Texas. That's where the company is. And you can find out more if you aren't near Dripping Springs by going to richardsrainwater.com. That's richardsrainwater.com. Check them out to find out more. And We love telling stories about American entrepreneurship, and American hobbyists and tinkering, because that's what he was doing here, folks. He was just trying to solve a problem for himself and folks around him. Richard's Rainwater, the story behind the product and the man here on Our American Story.